KCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Thanks for calling today. Our guest is Jimmy Jones calling from Washington, D.C. Is that correct? That's right. Thank you so much for calling. Uh, I know there's a three-hour time difference. It's a great um, interview. I'm excited to have you as a former professor of the Graduate School of Library Information Science for me, although you're currently a professor in audiovisual materials in libraries and archives. Yep. And I'd like to know about your um, career path. How did you become a professor of audiovisual materials of library and archives? Um, well, I started, let's see, going all the way back to the late 90s. I worked in um, film production in the Midwest in the late 90s. And I decided I was going to go back to school. I had been in college. See, I started as a psych major, psychology major, and then I was a photography major. Then I dropped out of school and was out of school for a few years. And then I started working in film production as a grip and electrician on some TV, like, uh, commercial productions. And then I decided to go back to school, but I wanted to get a film degree. And so when I went back to school um, in my undergrad, I was uh, a work-study student in the Marriott Library at the University of Utah. And I was working in the rare books department. And then when I was about to graduate, I had a conversation with the head of special collections, and he said that um, he'd really like to start a collection in the multimedia archives of independent films produced in and around Salt Lake. And because I knew the library, because I'd been working there for a while, and because I knew the film community, he thought I would be a really good choice. And so I kind of looked at my life and was like, well, I could go back to making man-made commercials, or I could do something that actually had a little bit more meaning. And so I decided to become a film archivist. And so I worked for a couple of years in film archives and then decided that I wanted to get my master's in library science so I could actually make a living doing what I was doing because I, mean, I really wasn't making very much money. And that's when I went to the University of Illinois because it was one of the best schools in the country for library degrees. And got my degree in a couple of years and then worked for the library and then took a job in D.C. at the Library of Congress, and about a year before I moved out to D.C., I talked to the assistant dean of the library school at UIUC and said, you know, you don't have a really, you don't have any kind of a program, any kind of a class about audiovisual preservation. And what if I put together a syllabus and taught for a while an adjunct on top of my, my other job, my full-time job? And she said, sure, that sounds good. Why don't you put together a syllabus and we'll take a look at it and give you notes and we'll just see if there's interest. And it took about a year to get through all of those hoops. And we had uh, a lot of interest, actually. There was a waiting list for the class. A lot of people were very interested in it. And I've been teaching it for about three years now. I think I've taught it eight times. This is, I'm teaching it now, and I think now is the eighth time I've taught the class. And I've continually like changed it, refined it over the years. And, and um, this, it seems like there's always a wait list, and it's always full, and people are interested in it. I think because the more we use audiovisual materials in our culture, the more people are, under, are, are uh, understanding the value of preserving them. And so students 
really want to take the class because they want to learn about how to preserve AD materials and use them in libraries and archives. So it's been about a 10, let's see, I've worked for libraries for about 11, for about 12 years now. But it really all started in the late 90s when I was working in film production. Wow, that's, that's, really, that's really exciting because that's exactly... Uh... I did my undergrad here in film and media studies at UC Irvine and working in the libraries and I wanted to put it to use in audiovisual archives or audiovisual library collection and I, I tried production one time on a set too and putting it all together I think a lot of students are interested in your class because of um, backgrounds like this like yours and everyone that's interested in film and media that's a really exciting opportunity that you're it's been three years now with this class in library information science I hope more schools have a similar class as such yeah there I think more schools are recognizing the need for it I mean there are full-on AV preservation tracks NYU has a really good program and UCLA of course and some places overseas, but I think more and more library programs are bundling AV preservation into their curricula, which is a good thing. It's a very good thing. Yeah, and then so you've got your job at the Library of Con Congress, that's exciting, in Washington, D.C., and your um, very interesting career path to how you got there. So tell us, um, what, what's your goals for the future, to be a continuing professor at the Graduate School of Library Information Science as well? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, 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 I will keep teaching this class as long as they'll have me. Um, I've moved a little bit away from archives and more into preservation, strictly, you know, just, just straight up preservation work. And I think in the future I would like to move back a little bit into the archival side of things, you know, working with collections, working with donors, curating collections and shows of film, things that I did when I was a film archivist 10 years or, you know, seven, eight years ago, before I went back to, uh, to school to get my degree in, in library science. I think that that's where I would like to go. But yeah, I would keep teaching this class. As long as there's interest, as long as I feel like I can keep it current, because that's one of my... Um, but one of the, that's something that's really important to me is making sure that students are leaving the class with actual information that they can use. And I think the best way to do that is to make sure that the class is information content is always current. It's not, um, it doesn't get stale. And we stay on top of developments and trends in the field, particularly in the digital realm. We talk, we talk a lot about analog stuff. Because libraries and archives have a lot of analog stuff. we got to take care of that stuff. But over the past three years that I've been teaching the class, I would say the digital side of things has, in many ways, grown to eclipse the analog discussion in the class. And I think that's a good thing. I, I, would, be, I would feel very bad about having people leave without uh, you know, some kind of a basic understanding of digital formats and encodings and why we choose one over the other and that sort of thing. And so that has to always stay current. So as long as I feel like I can keep that current and there's interest, I'll keep teaching the class. Oh, yeah, a lot of um, audiovisual materials are, are born digital now. How do you preserve something that's only been published to YouTube or Vimeo, for example, but it's part of your collection somehow donated? Right. 
Right, right. It's, it's a real challenge. I mean, one of the things I tell my students is, you know, 50 years ago, it was kind of hard to make a movie. You know, the technology was not necessarily easy to get a hold of, and it was costly and involved home labs and equipment that um, was cumbersome and, and hard to get. And now it's comparatively much easier to make an audiovisual record of some kind. I mean, everyone seems, everyone has in their pocket or in their backpack or something an iPad or an iPhone or a laptop or something that can shoot and some people edit and publish video and audio. And so what we're looking at, I think, and this is one of the biggest challenges looking over the horizon a little bit in AV preservation is the wealth of stuff that we will be inundated with and collections more and more born digital records will be coming in and they'll be audiovisual and we will likely have a lot of them. So how do we treat this stuff? You know, how do we, knowing that archives, it's unlikely that archives are ever going to have enough staff and enough time and enough resources. What do we do? What's, what kind of technologies are there or are there being developed that will help us automate some part of the processes? You know, and what kinds of decisions will we have to make, curatorial decisions about what we teach and how, how are these things going to change over time? And in a lot of the class, this is discussion. This isn't something that I present as fact because audiovisual preservation, particularly in the digital realm, is such an emergent field. I mean, it's really quite exciting because we're seeing standards starting to develop that may hold for a long time. And we who are doing this work are making decisions that it really may affect the field for a very long time. So it's very exciting, but it's also very challenging. And what this means is, in my class, it's very often that I'm not telling the students this is how it's done. We're having discussions about what do you think? And here's how, here's how people are trying to treat this problem now, but it may change. In fact, it almost certainly will change over time and, and as technology changes and so forth. So it's very interesting. It, it, it's kind of, the class kind of tends towards the Socratic near the end of the semester when we kind of look forward at the future of AV preservation. And that's where I get to learn stuff from them just as much or sometimes more than what they learn from me. So this, this class has the dual benefit of me being able to share with the community my knowledge and my experience, but also me getting to learn from, in many cases, people who are considerably younger than me and, and in some ways more in touch with some of these technologies than I am. So it's, it's, a, it's a win-win, I think. Yeah, when when I think of um, audiovisual preservation or archiving, I think of the silent silent films, old time black and white on the reels, and uh, how you were talking about dust, dusting the reels with the gloves and preserving. But <laughs> yeah. now nowadays, yeah, it's more digital. That you have to just keep in mind it's so easy to get rid of um, such hard work just with a delete button. You need a backup of a backup, and on one computer and in a different facility. I remember you t- told us about some of those. Um, like the national archives and everything. Yeah, yeah, and, and broadcasters have been dealing with this a little bit longer than archives, but you know we're moving and pretty much have moved from a media-based environment, both in production and in preservation, to a more IT or file-based environment. So where it was shuttling tapes around and, and maintaining the humidity and cleaning off the films, and there's still some of that in archives, and there will be for years to come, but in terms of preservation and really in terms of access, we've moved into this file-based environment where we have to worry about things like metadata, 
and making sure that our files are in some way self-describing so that if they get, if a file gets divorced from other objects in the collection, we can still look, we can kind of pull back, pull up the hood and look at it and see, okay, this is when this was created, this is who it was made by, and so forth. So we're, we're thinking more in terms of files and information technology, you know, in a computer mindset, more than the traditional, like, you know, the paper catalog of finding aid and the film in a can on a shelf and so forth. In a way, actually in a way, we're kind of, right now we're kind of a hybrid between the two in a lot of libraries and archives. In the future, of course, will be that it's pretty much all file-based, you know, once the, once the media, the physical media finally dies off and is gotten rid of, whenever that is, and it may be a long time, but um, the future is, of course, ones and zeros, right? And the skill sets for dealing with transferring transcoding, describing those kinds of objects and not so much the physical stuff. So the library world generally is, has, is undergoing a seismic shift, right? But the AD world is as well, both in production and in preservation. And a lot of the preservation that we do, a lot of the standards that we're looking at using we are taking from the broadcast realm because as they move to these IT environments, they have a lot of the same issues of preserving and finding things that we do. So in many cases, we look to them for how they're doing things and what what kinds of files they're making and so forth. It's our, our digital future. Everything's yeah, moving to the internet base just tap into your files online that's why even libraries and archives themselves are, are changing how they function as a space for the community more than a space for holding the physical objects because you right. can tap in through your connections sometimes just with your library card all the information like the ebooks and AV. Um, I know in LA County they have you, with your library card you can download you know five Sony songs from all of Sony right. stuff like that. It's really exciting. And do you see that happening with um, film? Well, I see it. I mean, it's definitely happening with ebooks and audio recordings and so forth. Um, I think one of the things that puts a little bit of a drag on our ability to make film and video stuff as accessible as maybe we would like is copyright. Um, there's, there's a pushback there. And, you know, universities and libraries can get around that to some extent by having a quote-unquote kind of a virtual closed campus where we'll make it available only to people who log in. So it's behind a login wall. But there's, so there's that. But then there's also it's the issues of space. You know, if we're going to deliver high-quality video, how do we serve it out? Do we have the infrastructure to do that? Do we have the infrastructure to preserve it, you know, to, to save what are, in some cases, enormous files? Um, that's a problem with video. And even though storage space, the cost of storage space is plummeting, and some of these issues are, are less of a problem, a moderate to large-sized collection can still be in the terabytes. Or, or, I mean, you can get into the petabytes with some really big collections. And so storage space is still an issue. So these are the kinds of things that have, I think, put a little bit of a drag on, you know, the, the, uh, the vision of having everything accessible from your computer. 
and some of these things are going to be really hard to to surmount. But I think that your assessment early on is correct, and that is that libraries have definitely changed from being a siloed repository, you know, one place that holds a bunch of books and films and audio tapes and so forth, and and now is more the model is more of a portal, you know, portal to discovery. Um, and many times it's discovery of things that are not housed on our campus, you know, on our library campus. So that model of how libraries have changed um, will, will continue to push us to reevaluate how we're making things accessible and making things more accessible via the internet and so forth. So we're going to continue to have these issues and we're going to have to keep keeping these things in mind yeah. as we make things as accessible as we possibly can because this is what people are going to expect especially younger generations right mm -hmm. i mean I, i think back to when i was a kid i'm 38 and i think back to when i was a kid i remember before very many people had answering machines you know i remember before very very many people had home video recorders or cable television you know but now It was hard to get hold of people, you know, and it was hard to, to access media. Right? You had to actually leave your house to go somewhere to buy, to, to rent something or buy something. Now, so much stuff is available instantly, you know, on a, on a machine that fits in your pocket, in your iPhone or something. And so I'm continually stunned by these sorts of things. The younger generations that are coming up now and are working with information technologies now, people who are five, six, seven years old, sometimes people who are in their, their teens, are going to accepted as a given that everything should be available online. Everything should be instantly downloadable or streamable or whatever. And so if libraries and archives are going to maintain currency, you know, and not be seen as something, as an anachronism that's being left behind, then we are going to have to continually respond to this. And we're going to have to continually not just respond to, but um, be proactive in our preservation. You know, yeah. as more and more things are, more and more information objects become more and more complex, and audiovisual information is embedded in an article that's published online. So we're going to have to ask questions and think about how to preserve these things in some way that that, that makes them as um, information rich and accessible as possible. Yeah, in a way it's hard, you know, with copyright and everything. I think um, libraries should be sort of like an, an iTunes where you can stream the TV shows, movies, music, e the e-books and everything just, you know, just to your, your computer. But sure. then like re renting, checking it out, not purchasing, like not for commercial, but like a library is physically but online. We need right. to move more towards that. Which you know is hard with um, you know for-profit companies like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of hard to predict where things are going to go with libraries. But it, what one thing that is I think readily apparent is that there's going to be more of a call for instant. You know, being able to just get things instantly and not having to wait. And what that means for preservation is that. Ideally, archives and libraries and museums, I suppose, need to be proactive about their 
their digitization of their materials, of their analog, original. We'll digitize it and then we will, you know, we'll make it available for them. And that's something that's going to be a liability. I mean, that, that would be a liability in now and I think going forward to rely on that. I mean, we really need to be proactive. And then, on top of that, we have the fragility of these analog originals. So, you know, videotape is not going to last much longer, and audio tape and things that have these inherent vices built into their design that are causing them to degrade, sometimes at a horrifyingly fast rate. If we don't do something now, then we will not be able to do something later. So these things could be lost forever. So, so the clock is ticking. The clock is tick ticking both because of these big cultural shifts in, in terms of access and what's expected of us, but also because of just the stuff itself. It's falling apart. Yeah, I do see it well, as I'm looking for jobs as a new graduate. I do see positions of, for, you know, temporary projects of digitizing different collections. So it is something mm -hmm. I see people are looking at. It's just not like a full-time permanent job. They just have, you know, funds for a year or two. And right. That's good, I guess, experience to be able to give that to someone. It, it is good experience. You know, and unfortunately, because of the just catastrophically bad economy, past few years. There really aren't that many full-time positions doing that kind of work. But yeah, a lot of times they're restricted funds from grant projects. You know, we've got enough money in the pot to pay somebody 40 grand to digitize this big important collection over the next year or do some kind of, you know, quality control and metadata embedding or something for the next year, that sort of thing. So there's a pretty fair amount of that stuff out there because the community knows. I mean, we in the preservation community know that this stuff's falling apart. And that, just that knowledge is kind of a win, because 10 years ago, people weren't thinking about all the original materials quite in the same way that they are now. I mean, YouTube, Vimeo, these kinds of things are good in that they've really spurred the conversation. I mean, they've made a lot of libraries and archives and museums think about, you know, what what do we have in our collection? What can we, what can we push out? What can we stream? What can we make available, even of this old stuff? And because of YouTube, people are thinking not just in terms of text-based and still image-based materials, but in, in terms of moving image stuff. So it's good for us. But at the same time, there's often a lack of funds for putting someone on full time. Yeah, and I think it's scary how easy our, our history can be lost in the past, how it's been there with reels just stored somewhere, and we can, it can last for our current um, generation. But in the future, I think it's so easy for what we're producing now to just um, be deleted, to be gone, and for the future not to have a past. That's what's scary, yeah. I think. Yeah, I, I mean, digital, digital objects in many ways are more fragile than their analog counterparts, <laughs> I guess. Um, it's, it's very easy to lose something that is digital and it's not well described. Um, yeah, things can be written over, files can be lost. And again, this is why we're looking to the broadcast industry who knows these things, you know, and they have a very big vested interest in not losing materials and not deleting files and, or parts of files and so forth. So, there are, they are learning, and we are learning from them, like they have been learning, we're learning from them. But we also have, you know, the, 
digital asset management architecture of libraries and archives. They have advanced quite a bit in the past 10 years, and there are a lot of controls that any kind of serious trusted repository can implement and strictures and so forth, rules that they can follow to guard against deletion of files. But yeah, it is, it's, it's never going to not be a risk, you know? Yeah. Never going to not be a risk that we can lose stuff. But in, in fairness, that's always been true of the analog world as well. And anyone who's worked in the library archives knows what it's like to go to the shelf and the object's not there and you have no idea where it went. So we've always needed control against that. So that's like the landscape of audiovisual preservation in the, the nation or for the world. And then what do you suggest for individually? Should each, you know, personal family be taking, you know, history, audiovisual history of, of their last name? I mean, there's the home videos. And I know you had a, a project with the community. There's a, like a film festival. Everybody brings their home videos. I remember you talking about yeah. that. That's yeah, like very interesting. Day. Yeah, I really like that. Um, can you tell us about that? Is that something I think anybody can do anywhere, but somebody started yeah. it? Yeah. Um, let me look up the URL. I think it's Home Movie Day. I think it's a dot .com and not a dot .org. Yeah, Home Movie Day, all one word, dot .com. Home Movie Day has been around for about 10 years now. Um, it was started by a group of film archivists 10 or 11 years ago who decided that um, it's... It's very important to our cultural record to save home movies, not just Hollywood-produced films, and not just art cinema and that sort of thing, not just the artistic expressions, but home movies are very important and very intimate, very real snapshots of what life is really like. And we need to be saving these sorts of things because more and more documentarians are interested in them, more and more historians and, and um, social historians and so forth. <coughs> Excuse me are interested in, in these records, and we need to be preserving them, and we need to be proactive. We need to be engaging our communities and saying, you know, we, will, we, we take care of this stuff, but you should take care of it too. You probably have a can or a shoebox or something, you know, a manila envelope with some home movies in them somewhere in your house. And we're talking about movie movies. You know, this is 8mm Super 8, 16mm small gauge film record. Um, you probably have some of these in your house. Why don't we start this festival? We'll have it in a few cities around the country on the same day, and we'll invite people to bring their home movies in. We will inspect them, we'll take a look at them, and make sure that they're in good enough shape to project, and then we'll throw them up on a projector. And people from the community can come, people can come and just watch the home movies if they want, people can bring their own home movies and watch them if they want. We'll tell them about you know, the value of good climate-controlled storage and so forth, and, you know, how your film film is probably going to outlive your DVDs and your videotapes, so we're going to do a little bit of, you know, community engagement about the value of film as film and so forth, and it really took off. A lot of people came out to these locations where they were doing the, the events, and it's grown from there, and it's done every year. It's become this kind of global phenomenon. And this year, I'm looking at the website, it's Saturday, October 20th. Um, I worked on one, I think it was the, third, the second or third year that there was a home movie day. We started it in Salt Lake City. And we had a line out the door. We had a lot of people turn out. 
a lot of people who hadn't seen these films in years because they didn't have a projector anymore. They had forgotten that they had them until they saw the ad in the newspaper for the event, until they came and wanted to see them. A lot of people came because they had some films that were their parents' films or their grandparents' films, and they wanted to show them. And um, it was a really interesting event, and, and a lot of people had a lot of fun. And um, as representatives of the archives uh, at the University of Utah, we said, if you don't want your films anymore, don't throw them away, give them to an archive, give them to us, and we'll preserve them and we'll make them available because they're really very valuable. You know, you may not think that your home movies have any interest to anyone outside of you, but there's a lot of valuable cultural information in these films. I mean, you get to see what this part of America was like in that year that it was shot. You get to see the fashions, you get to see, you know, if it's outdoors, you get to see what Main Street looked like in Salt Lake City in 1938, you know? These things have interest both to the family, but also to researchers outside of the family. And home movie has been going strong for about 10 years now. And it is one really good example of the need for what we call personal archiving, which is maintaining your own family's records. They can be text, they can be image, they could be videos, whatever, both analog and digital. The more that we can do to preserve our stuff before we roll it into an archive or something, the easier it is for those of us in the preservation side, in the archives and libraries, to ingest these things and make them available. So personal archiving is about saving your stuff for yourself so that it's accessible. You know, in the digital realm, it's simple things like having some kind of a logical file naming convention, geo-separating your stuff, so making copies both on your local laptop or hard drive or whatever, and then making a copy that you keep at the friend's house. So if your house burns down, then you still have these files available to you. Um, you don't lose all of this valuable digital information, and so forth. So it's, it's this larger kind of ethic that I think a lot of people in the libraries and archives world are trying to encourage. That is, it's not just up to us to save your stuff for you. You've got to save your stuff too, and you've got to make your stuff as easy to find as possible. So the very basics of metadata on top of the very basics of preservation. The, the logic being, and I think this goes back to what I was saying earlier, it is so easy now to make information records. We do it all the time an email, uh, a text document, we take a picture with our phone, whatever. We're producing large volumes of stuff, and with large volumes of stuff comes a strong risk that we will lose stuff and not be able to find it. Or, like you were saying earlier, write a file over a file, and in so doing, lose that original file, and so forth. So, it's, it's just, it's good for libraries and archives, and it's the potential to make our jobs easier down the road as we take in these large digital collections. But it also enriches the community. You know, at Home Movie Day, even though it's a celebration of the analog, not necessarily the digital, it's still a part of that larger ethic. And that larger ethic of your stuff is valuable. It's not just valuable to you and your family. Even when your family is gone and you are gone, the larger world will have will see value in your in your materials. Uh, that's so, a good. Yeah, I ran one. So anyway, to get back to your question, <laughs> get out my soapbox. 
to get back to your question, I, I helped run one in Salt Lake, and then I helped, I coordinated them with three of them in Champaign-Urbana while I was there. So I've worked on four of them. And I'm hoping that this year I'm to be a part of um, one in the larger D.C., Baltimore area. I'm already working with some people to help just start coordinating that. Because I think it's really important. I think it's very important for archivists and librarians to engage the community about these kinds of issues and not just be uh, passive recipients of materials, but really do our best to, to help people learn about preserving their stuff. Well, that's a good message for our listeners here um, listening on 88.9 FM in Orange County, Irvine. Just let everybody know it's very important to preserve your your family videos and audio material and not and also give it the right information, like tag it. So yeah. online, say Flickr or whatever people use, it's just tag it so it's available to yourself in the future to find. That's right. Yeah, that'd be findable. You gotta be able to find this stuff. Yeah, I like how they have the map features, and you can put your vacation photos where you were, and then see other people's photos. Also, if you if you don't mind that um, public, some people are, are very private, so it, you know, it's different family to family. Yeah, I think it's. I, mean, I, I think it's a little bit understandable, and um, I've known people who have been a little bit surprised that their phone was embedding some geospatial information in the image and they didn't know it and it kind of freaked them out and so forth. So, you know, the more you use your materials, the more you put them online and stuff, the more imperative, I suppose, it is that you understand what you are, what kind of information you're sharing because sometimes it's not information that you want to be sharing. Yeah, it's very easy to, yeah, not think about what's on there. And I, I know my mother, for example, is very private and doesn't want anything on the internet about her, right? It's yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, you know, that's an interesting thing that I think it's, it's a real generational difference. You know, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm kind of, I straddle the line between the generations. It seems like the younger generations, younger than me, have no problem bearing everything, every part of their life online. Um, sometimes really private stuff online. Whereas the generation before me, maybe my mom's age, you know, they, they don't they don't like to share that much. They view it with a little bit of suspicion, maybe rightfully so. Um, I'm kind of in between. I, I like sharing some things about myself, but of course, I, I don't like to share everything. I think that's a little bit, um, I don't know, it's, it's just kind of counter to how I was raised, I guess. But I, clearly the trend is for everyone to feel like they're a star. So everyone gets, you know, they're... they're their little corner of the internet to be a celebrity. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, viral videos and things really like exploding off of YouTube and, and stuff like that really seems to, it, it serves to feed that, I suppose, that maybe I'm going to be the next whatever, you know, I'm going to be the next week-long internet sensation with my little goofy YouTube video or my cat yeah, apparently that's how Justin Bieber was discovered, uh, so I hear, yeah. through YouTube, so it can yeah, happen. Yeah. <laughs> like interesting, interesting factoid about, that pertains, I guess, indirectly to Justin Bieber. He had a movie a couple of years ago about his life that came out in 3D, and I think that was the first of its kind of 3D submission of its, of its kind to the Library of Congress. <laughs> to their Culpeper, Culpeper facility. Yeah, I remember somebody that worked down in Culpeper. Culpeper, Virginia is where the library 
audiovisual preservation center is. It's not where I work. I work on the hill. Uh, but I remember one of the engineers told me that uh, that, that was one of the first films that they, wow. <laughs> that they received. It was the first film of that kind of 3D. <laughs> Yeah, I remember seeing a video of that facility, and that's a great um, space to store all the the film for for the Library of Congress. And so that's in Virginia. Yeah, it's about an hour, hour and a half south of DC. Built into an old, uh, I think it was an old Federal Reserve building bunker that was built into the side of a small mountain called Mount Pony in Virginia, and they cleared it out and retrofit it to to be this brand new state-of-the-art facility. It's, it's quite a wonder to see. They're doing really great work and they've employed a lot of the best of the best audiovisual preservation folks. So, so don't worry that Justin Bieber film will be available for the, the future generations. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're thinking of us and I really thank yeah. you for calling in. Our 30-minute uh, public affairs programming has come to an end, but thanks for Great. your time from the w- Washington, D.C. East Coast area. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for getting up so early to record it. Oh, anytime, and um, enjoy your future in the Graduate School of Library Information Science teaching your audiovisual materials in libraries and archives. I enjoyed your class, and I hope you do a lot more for the future um, landscape of audiovisual preservation. Well, I'm going to try. Thanks a lot for talking to me. Appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Have a good day. You too. Thanks. Bye. Bye.